Section 30 of the Heroines of History. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Stacy Cologne. The Heroines of History by John S. Jenkins. Mary of Scotland, Part 4. In June of this year, 1566, the Queen gave birth to a son who afterwards became James I of England, being the first sovereign who united the sceptres of that country and Scotland. In him were Mary's double title, and many hopes realized, though not until after her death, and alas, after that tender infant over whom she now watched, when grown a young man, had repudiated in stinging words his own mother in her sad captivity. The birth was a great matter of public rejoicing, the celebration continued long, the people, both high and low degree, assembling in solemn thanksgiving. The infant had an earl for governor, and his lady for governess, and was kept at Stirling Castle. Six months after, the child, remarkable for health and strength, was there baptized with extraordinary pomp. Ambassadors from all the chief courts of Europe came to attend the ceremony. Sixty thousand dollars were levied to defray the cost of their entertainment, and of the occasion. Queen Elizabeth sent a font of gold worth five thousand dollars, and the baptism was duly performed after the Catholic ritual. The christened name was Charles James, James Charles, Prince and Steward of Scotland, Duke of Rothesey, Earl of Carrick, Lord of the Isles, and Baron of Renfrew. Among many other provisions made for the royal babe, five ladies of rank were appointed rockers of his cradle. And though he as yet could taste milk only, he had a master cook, a foreman, and three other servitors, and one for his pantry, one for his wine, and two for his ale-cellar. As a specimen of the presents given by Mary in honor of the event, may be mentioned a chain of diamonds worth three thousand dollars given to the Duke of Bedford, Elizabeth's ambassador. The most exciting scenes in the life of Mary had already begun to rapidly unfold themselves. All that occurred so far is but the first breath of a tempest. After the affair of Rizzio, Darnley found himself more than ever despised and slighted by the nobility. Nor had he the cunning or the care to hide his resentment from them. He shunned the society of almost every one, accompanying the queen only a part of the time on her journeys after her confinement, and, for the rest, wandering restlessly from one place to another. Through all these months his wife maintained the same kind manner to him, and paid him indeed all the more attention as a rebuke to the contemptuous lords, and he had the nobleness to recognize this in a marked way, and by declaring always that he had no complaint to make against her. He formed, or pretended, a plan to leave Scotland for the continent. This may have been done to extort some concessions of power from her, when she was so sick with fever and convulsions, two months before the christening that all hope of her recovery was given up, he was by her side, having flown to her at the first news of her serious illness, and when, immediately on her recovery, the proposal to divorce Darnley was made, at the instigation of Bothwell, by her counsel, she instantly rejected the idea from personal choice as well as for reasons of state. This proposal was the first step in the bold and terrible part which Bothwell played, it led to the scenes of horror that which history has few greater. That Earl was now in his thirty-sixth year, and but nine months before had married Lady Jane Gordon, sister of the Earl of Huntley. 
The plan to effect a divorce between the queen and the king was the first sign of the purpose he had evidently formed to wear a crown himself as the husband of Mary. Never was a design more daring in itself or in its execution. He so addressed himself to the selfish interests of the barons that he secured their active or tacit support to any extremity or procedure against Darnley, still keeping his own ulterior purpose disguised. The king's death was resolved upon, or assented to, by all the chiefs. At this crisis, Darnley was taken ill at Glasgow with the smallpox. It has been asserted, with much improbability, that it was poison rather than disease. The queen, full of sympathy and alarm, went immediately to take care of him. She found him recovering, and returned with him in a vehicle to Edinburgh. From the nature of his infectious disease, or from his aversion to the presence of the lords, he was lodged in a house adjoining the southern wall of the city, and called Kirk in the Field. It had four rooms, of which an upper one was occupied by Darnley, and the one immediately beneath it by Mary, who spent much of her time and often slept there. She sat for hours by her husband's bed, and occasionally entertained him with the songs and instrumental music of her band. Little did the Queen or Darnley dream of the volcano preparing beneath their feet during the ten days they passed together in that house. We may imagine him subdued by sickness, to calm thought and gentle feeling, and her renewing the ardor of first love to her handsome and wayward lover in commiseration for his calamities. And well may he be an object of pity to all men. He was but a boy of nineteen when wedded to a queen and raised to a kingly power that half maddened his naturally strong will. Now he was aged twenty years only, and his heroic wife was but twenty-four. Men of age and wisdom had in every way endeavored to estrange the hearts of these two fair young beings, and were now busily plotting the destruction of one or both. Bothwell lost no time. On Sunday night, the ninth of February, 1567, the Queen was to attend the marriage of two of her favorite servants at Holyrood, and thus would not be at the Kirk in the Field. Duplicate keys of the house had been obtained. Eight men were enlisted to do the deed. As the best plan to avoid recognition and detection, powder had been brought from Dunbar Castle two days before. With this, the house was to be blown up. There was of so great quantity that the men went twice with horses to transport it. The queen and three earls were in Darnley's room while it was carried into her room beneath, and Bothwell himself, after overseeing the inhuman work, joined the party in the sick man's chamber, so self-possessed and fearless was he. In the conversation there, it is said that Mary remarked, It was just about that time last year David Rizzio was killed, a chance word that might well have made the bold earl visibly shrink. At eleven o'clock, she affectionately kissed her youthful husband, unconscious that she would never hear his voice again, then left with the others to attend the wedding. As she entered Holyrood House, she detected the smell of gunpowder in a passing servant of Bothwell and asked what it meant. An evasive answer was given, and she said no more. Bothwell joined the dancing and masking party, then went to his own house and exchanged his silver-embroidered doublet of black satin for coarse dress and cloak. With his accomplices, he hurried to the scene of action, affixed a piece of lint to the powder, which lay in a heap on the floor, and lighting the train, hastened to a garden close at hand to await the catastrophe. For fifteen minutes all was silent, and Bothwell was with difficulty restrained from going to examine the lighted match. But his patience was needed no longer. Suddenly, 
the city echoed as with many thunders in one, and shook as with an earthquake. The doomed building was shivered to pieces. Stones, ten feet in length and four in breadth, it is affirmed, were found blown from the house a far way. Bothwell made all speed through by-streets for his lodgings and retired to bed. In half an hour the news came to him that the king was killed. He donned the same dress he had worn in the presence of the queen a few hours before, and assuming great anger, went with the others to break the news to Mary, who was already distressed to know certainly of the rumor that had reached her. At daybreak the guilty lords went to the scene, where they found a crowd gathered. One servant was rescued alive from the ruins. Three others were killed, one of whom, together with Darnley, was found at a great distance, both dead, but with hardly a wound. Thus perished Henry Stuart, who bore the titles of Lord Darnley, Duke of Albany, and King of Scotland, after a reign, if it may be called such, of eighteen months. Young, imprudent, willful, and vicious, yet fascinating and accomplished, his union with Mary and his shocking death have attached to his name a lasting interest. The unhappy queen shut herself up and refused to see any one. Her account of the event in a letter to her ambassador at Paris is on record, and is full of unaffected grief and horror. Believing that violence was intended to herself also, she removed to Edinburgh Castle for greater safety. Great rewards were offered for the detection of the murderers. Suspicion soon centered on Bothwell. At night, a placard was posted, charging the deed on him together with others not accepting the queen as one who connived at the crime. The whole country was agitated with mystery. Mary used every exertion to penetrate it, but she knew not whom to arrest, and was so worn out with trouble that she was prevailed on to journey for her health. According to the entreaty of Lennox, Darnley's father, she finally ordered a trial of Bothwell in April. At this, Bothwell was acquitted, having taken care to make it unsafe for Lennox to appear and support the charge even if he could have found evidence to sustain it. Bothwell's next achievement was the procuring of a written bond signed by nearly all the nobility of every party and creed, pledging their lives and goods to aid his claims to Mary's hand. This was accomplished at a supper to which he invited them on the 20th of April. It must have required much preliminary electioneering, and as proof of very bold and subtle finesse, or perhaps the lords readily assented, in order to better ruin Mary. The bond was secured for its effects on the Queen at a future day, and for the present was kept from her knowledge. When questioned as to the report of her intended marriage with the Earl, she said there was no such thing in her mind, and when Bothwell soon after hinted his desire to her, she discouraged it altogether. The time had come, therefore, for another high-handed act. The Queen had been spending a few days at Stirling, and was to return on the 24th of April. Bothwell gathered a band of cavalry, numbering between five hundred and a thousand men, as if to suppress disturbances on the southern border over which he ruled. But changing his course after proceeding a short distance, he intercepted Mary and her slender escort at Linlithgow, took the bride of her horse, and hastened to Dunbar Castle. An abduction at all, under the circumstances, together with the unnecessary number of troopers employed and the spirit of Mary's whole life and testimony, are some of the evidences that this affair was not with her knowledge or consent as has been maintained. Able writers have not only laboriously accused her of this, but have argued that she had already a criminal intimacy with Bothwell, and that too before the murder of her husband. 
All that we know of her on undisputed record and a great variety of circumstances that any reader of history may gather utterly disprove the foul insinuations and assaults of partisan or blind writers. At Dunbar Castle on the rocky seashore, Mary was held ten days in a solitude to which none but Bothwell was admitted, not even her own servants. She saw no signs of an attempt by her subjects to deliver her. She found the nobles were pledged on the earl's side. He both supplicated her love and tender appeals, and declared that he would compel her to marry him against her will if necessary. Darnley, though only three months in his grave, had been one of the murderers of her faithful servant and secretary, and had before forfeited her love, so that she must have felt his death a relief, though a great shock to her sensibilities. There was not a man of influence except her captor on whom she could rely. Her kingdom was full of trouble and violence. Bothwell was a man of shrewd mind, unflinching courage, and great energy. He had been acquitted at his trial, and had the written consent of all the peers to his marriage with her. He was that sort of fierce lover which her whole temperament would lead her to admire and yield to. She was not a shrinking maiden, and above all, she was wholly in his power with no prospect of escape. What wonder she at last consented to be his bride, or that, having once consented and received his fond attentions, she afterwards under less apparent necessity adhered to her promise. But there is reason to believe that he went to the most guilty extremities of compulsion, so that her course subsequently became one of mere necessity. Meantime, he and his injured wife both sued for a divorce, which was hurriedly granted by the courts. Taken under guard to Edinburgh Castle, which was in Bothwell's control, Mary was not permitted to appear in public until the bans of marriage had been twice proclaimed. The ceremony took place in a very quiet way, and according to the Protestant form, to which the Queen seems to have been reconciled only by a despairing state of mind, so unfaltering was her steadfastness and her peculiar faith through a whole life. A sermon was preached on the occasion, and after it at supper Bothwell gave loose to his coarse hilarity elated by his entire success. But his success so far was no less complete than was the conscious ruin of the Queen of Scots. So hopeless was she, it is declared, that she threatened to commit suicide. Though she was reinstated in Holyrood Palace, she was continually guarded by two hundred harquebusiers in the pay of her ravisher. His conduct to her was full of suspicion and rudeness. His other wife, formerly divorced, remained in his former residence, and, as it was believed, had an understanding with him. And to these sources of Mary's misery were added the now apparently confirmed and triumphant accusations of many of her subjects, and a loss of the respect of other nations and royal courts. Villainy ever overacts its part. Bothwell might have confirmed his triumph by a prudent course, but in his proud exultation he took no care to allay the already active envy of the nobles, and he even boasted that if he could get Mary's child into his possession, the young prince would never have an opportunity to revenge the death of his father. Soon after, he proclaimed his intention to go with the queen to quell some troubles on the border, and called on the chiefs to appear with their forces under arms for this purpose. It was at once suspected that he had designs on the young prince at Stirling Castle. Accordingly, the prince's lords, as they were thenceforth termed, gathered their retainers as if in compliance with the call, but assembled at Stirling in great numbers in open opposition to Bothwell. He just then learned that he could not rely on the keeper of the castle of Edinburgh, and fearing an attack from that quarter also, with the ready apprehension of an evil conscience, 
retired to Borthwick Castle, seven miles south of the city. No sooner had he placed Mary there and collected all his force in defense than he found himself surrounded by the swarming army of his adversaries. At night he fled through their ranks, in company with Mary, whose fortunes were now thoroughly involved with his, and who thus escaped in the disguise of male attire. Arrived at Dunbar, he summoned all the queen's lieges to her name to appear for her defense. An army of two thousand men, moved by feeling of loyalty, answered the call and were led forth by himself and Mary. The opposing forces met at Carberry Hill, but neither seemed disposed to engage the other in battle. The day was spent in negotiations, at one time for peace, at another for a decision by single combat, Bothwell having challenged any man of his own rank to meet him, and each party claiming that the other was in blame for the failure of this proposal. Finally, the queen offered to place herself in the hands of her lords, and to pardon their seeming revolt, provided they would ensure her free sovereignty. To frustrate her purpose, Bothwell, with characteristic desperation, attempted to shoot her messenger, and not succeeding, retired angrily to Dunbar Castle with his few followers. The moment Mary surrendered herself to the nobles, for the sake, as she said, of saving the waste of Christian blood and her people's lives, was a turning point of his rash career. Not long after, he found it advisable to escape into the north of Scotland, where he held estates as a Duke of Orkney. Pursued thither by his enemies, and nearly captured as he was flying from them in a boat, it is related that he remained a while in the Orkney Isles, committing piracy on the seas, and was at last taken to Denmark, or else voluntarily went thither, to enlist the Danish king in his wretched cause. However that may be, it is believed he spent years in a Danish dungeon, and at last died insane, from the mad chafing of his proud, restless spirit, and the gnawings of conscience. His life was strange and wild as a dream. He was an embodiment of the fiery passions of the age. In our times, noblemen are giving scientific lectures to the people, or sitting as chairman of peace conventions and missionary societies. Mary's conduct to Carberry Hill can hardly be construed into any real love for Bothwell. Her army was so superior in numbers and position as to promise a sure victory. She would not have prevented a battle, or parted from him in such a manner had she not desired to put herself out of his power. But her noble trust in her base nobleman was destined to be betrayed. As she entered the city, she was preceded by a banner, whereupon was painted the shocking picture of Darnley lying dead, and her child kneeling before it, with the words, Judge and revenge my cause, O Lord. The populace pressed around her, and insulted her with the most shameful exclamations while she rode on her face bowed down in tears. To her surprise, the lords led her past Holyrood. She called out all her loyal subjects to interfere on her behalf, but she was taken to the provost's house. The next day, she so worked upon the variable sympathies of the crowd that her oppressors escorted her to the palace. This was but a feint of submission, or rather a step to a greater outrage. At midnight, Ruthven and Lindsay, the grim earls who were active in Rizzio's assassination, aroused her from sleep, disguised her in a coarse riding-dress, and placing her on a horse, made all speed through the darkness until morning, when she found herself at Lochleven Castle, which was situated on a small island in the lake of that name north of Edinburgh. This was a place of great security, and the more so in this case, as it was, the seat of Lady Douglas, the mother of Earl Murray, and closely connected with Lindsay and Morton, all of them at heart, the foes of Mary. 
The full extent of the designs against her was hidden from the unfortunate queen. It was represented that extreme care for her safety in view of the power of Bothwell was the reason for such treatment, but she could not doubt that some evil was intended. Her keeper, the Lady of Lochleven, as she was more generally known, behaved harshly to her charge, and even taunted her with a pretension to the crown itself. She was kept, too, in close confinement. Her rooms occupying a bastion that overhung the waters of the lake are still shown to travelers, though dilapidated, like the rest of the castle. Thus far, the dominant party had not dared to publicly charge her with crime. Their declarations show that she was universally regarded as a helpless victim of the Lord of Dunbar Castle. Two great parties, however, soon began to define themselves, one for the Queen and one for the Prince. Morton, the leader of the latter, was at Edinburgh with his supporters. Hamilton Palace near Glasgow was a rendezvous of the Queen's friends, among whom were Huntley, Argyle, Rose, Livingston, and Seton, altogether representing a majority of the kingdom. The prince's friends, as they termed themselves, began to publish many systematic falsehoods criminating Mary, and these have been repeated and urged ever since. Their motives are plain. They hoped by dethroning her both to escape punishment for their misdeeds and to rise into greater power. And the queen's friends, knowing this, proposed that they should liberate her on condition she would forever pardon them. But they had gone too far to consent to this. Elizabeth, too, was busily instigating them against Mary, and Murray, who had long been at Paris, cautiously watched events in Scotland, lent them his encouragement. End of section 30. Recording by Stacy Cologne, Fort Worth, Texas.